You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Testing one, two. Good morning. Kyle, thank you. Appreciate you, bro. Didn't get, get to give you a hug earlier, but good to see you. Good morning, everybody. You guys okay? Hi, Aaron. I didn't see you earlier before either. Katie. You know, I'm sorry. I, I don't want anyone to feel left out. Good morning, all of you. If I knew your names, I would say them all. You know what I'm saying. Bless you guys. It's always a joy to be back. I want to greet you from uh, my wife, Carol, my son, Cadence, whom some of you guys might remember from over the summer. He was with you and the rest of the kids. Um, greetings from the church in Chicago. It's you know, it's so special to me um, when I get to come to a place like this where we have relationships that, that the Lord has kind of knit together over years of time. And when I share that with our church, there is a concerted commitment on, on their part to pray. Uh, pray for me, pray for you, pray for that, you know, that when I'm here and not there, that there's purpose behind that. I'm not a traveling speaker. It's not my my job is to go from church to church. Some people do that. I don't. I live and work in the city of Chicago. That's where I, I spend my life. That's where I invest 90% of my resources. When I come to a, a place like this, it's by divine direction. I, I, I feel like a very clear sense of purpose in it. So I want you all to know, like people are praying for you. They're praying for the work of God in your, in your church community, in your city, and um, I'm really grateful for that, that I'm, I'm not just standing up here on my own, like a free agent, you know, just going wherever they give me the best benefit package. I'm standing here because there's a community behind me saying, go, you know, and, and praying and supporting and even people we do life with uh, that are praying and prayerful about, should I go here? Should I go there? I, I don't. I'm not operating as an independent person here, but as a member of the body of Christ. So I hope you will receive the word of the Lord that way. Like, man, this is a team effort. And you have people in Chicago. If you've never been, you have people there who are contending with you for God's purposes. And that matters a lot to me. Anyone from Chicago in the room? Awesome. Anybody spent any time there over the years? Okay, a good number of you. It's been an unseasonably warm winter in Chicago. A lot of people's computer desks have not had to been put on the street. Does anyone know what I'm talking about right now? In Chicago, there's an unofficial system called dibs during the winter. And when the snow plows come through, you know, we have parked cars on both sides of the street. So the snow plows come through and they just push the snow all up against the cars. So when you go out there, your car is not only snow on top of it, but snow all around it from the plows that have pushed it up again. So here's the system in Chicago. If you dig out your car, like if you dig out the snow so that your car is able to pull out, you get to put something in the street to reserve your spot. Now, this is unofficial, mind you. The police will not endorse this. However, if you take someone's spot, you can expect like water to be poured over your car. You can expect it to be iced. You can expect 
certain amount of keying to be done. Like if you take someone's spot, I'm telling you, I've seen some of the craziest things out in the street. I've seen like ironing boards out there. Like I've, I've seen computer desks. I've seen baby cribs. It makes me think like what is happening in that house where the baby crib is? I've seen computer monitors out there in the street. Like no one wants these things apparently. Just the craziest kind of thing. But anyway, what I'm trying to tell you is it's been such a balmy winter. We've been able to save a lot of our furniture. <laughs> inside, inside, it stayed inside. In any case, uh, we're going to be in First Peter this morning. First Peter, uh, specifically chapter four, and I, uh, I'm going to read the passage first, and then I'm going to share with you what I believe the Lord has put on my heart. I'm 52 now, so the readers come out. First Peter chapter four, I'm going to read verses seven through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, this morning, you've already kissed us with your presence. You've already stirred our hearts. You already called us to lift our gaze higher. You've, you've already invited us to consider your beauty and your majesty. And Lord, I, now I just pray that you would help us to add to all those things wisdom. We need a mentality that is prepared to live well in the generation to which you've called us. We need a mindset that is not shaking, that is not marked by fear and dread. We need hearts that are full of courage, confidence, and authority. So I ask that even in these moments, by the Holy Spirit, you would anoint the word of God so that it is as as it's explained, as it's unfolded, as it's used in a setting like this for encouragement, for exhortation, for a prophetic charge, Lord, I, just, I pray that there's weight on it. I pray that it settles into our hearts. I pray the seed is allowed to be planted, that, that it goes deep, that it takes root, and that it's going to bear incredible fruit for your glory. Thank you, God, for being near. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> First Peter 4, 7. This, this passage is really astonishing. And it's really important that we understand how it relates to us. Um, it's 2024. This text was composed around 
1,960 years ago, give or take. So 1,960 years ago, the apostle Peter said, the end of everything is here. (laughs) How's that make you feel? You know, we're closer now than we've ever been to the end of everything. But still, it's been the end of everything being near for a couple thousand years. So there's some part of this exhortation that you want to make sure that you understand. Like, hey, look, ever since the first generation of Christians, we've been living in light of the end of everything. That's the whole way they framed their existence in the first century. And that shouldn't be changing now. We should, we should still always be conscious. Like, we're, we're close to the end. This thing's about to wrap up. So much of the New Testament literature is written with that mindset. Like, guys, we can't afford to be living all loosey-goosey. Like, ah, whatever. You know, we, we can just do whatever we want. We can live whatever way we choose. Come on now. There's something at stake in the way we live. Because something is approaching that the apostles call the end of everything. (laughs) That's super apocalyptic, right? Isn't that kind of like one of those, you know, haunting phrases? Oh my gosh, the end of everything. Now look, on our end, for those of us who are put our trust in Christ, like we're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to the end of everything because what it means is the end of injustice. It means the end of sickness. It It means the end of demonic harassment of God's people. It means the end of all of the powerful forces that are aligned against God having their way with people, with humanity, and with creation. It means the end of that. It means stepping into the bright future marked by the physical presence of God and a renovated creation. I mean, that's something to look forward to, the end of everything. But there's a tendency on the part of some to approach the end of everything with a mindset governed a little bit by fear, a little bit by paranoia, and a little bit by a sort of trend toward uh, overreacting, toward a lot of hyperactivity, toward a lot of trying to protect themselves against things that they think have authority or power over them. I don't know if you guys have noticed, there's an election coming up. Probably you didn't notice. Um, And you're gonna hear a lot of rhetoric about that. Because if so-and-so isn't elected, it means the end of America. I don't know if you knew that. Or, Or if the other one isn't elected, it means the end of America. They'll both tell you that. There will be a lot of speech making, a lot of position taking, a lot of uh, lofty rhetoric about the American people this and that. Have you, know, have you ever noticed that with the politicians? It's the American people who want this and that. It's like, no, you, you kind of want that. <laughs> you know, you're using us. To... But you know, unfortunately, churches are not immune to the kind of like rhetorical uh, extremism at times. Like we, we tend to get sucked into those arguments because we're needed for the politicians to get elected. So many times we get used. The gospel gets used. Jesus gets used by politicians to get what they want. Now, I'm not up here to give you a political speech. I'm just telling you this is kind of the way things work. If you listen to the candidates, nobody's gonna really badmouth Jesus because they're not dumb. As far as I can 
tell, there's been no atheists ever elected to the presidential office of the United States. I don't think there have been any atheists elected to the Senate. I could be wrong. Because people know, if you want to get enough votes in our country, you've got to at least say God has something to do with it. It's just the way, it's the way it works. Now, many of them might have sincere faith. Awesome. I'm, again, I'm not, I don't, I just want you to be aware that we have to be on guard against the kind of rhetoric that would cause us to approach the future with fear. With anxiety. This is the age of anxiety. I don't know if you're aware of this. The, the level of anxiety among this current generation. And we could point out the reasons. You know, there's pandemics, there's, there's wars, there's catastrophes, there's political things going on and people get, and now you know more about that than you ever have because of the internet and social media. So now 13 year olds have to bear the burden of what's going on in Gaza and, and what's going on here and there. And it's like, and we wonder why they're anxious. But I'm just trying to tell you like, we are not that people who are built to live in fear or anxiety. We know, that, I mean, the word of God tells us we have been given a spirit that does not grant fear, but generates love, power, and a sound mind. And if we are gonna talk about living in light of the end, we have to be very clear about what our responsibilities are and what the scripture does not say. And what it does not say is that the end of all things is at hand, therefore go to buy some land in Idaho and build a bunker and store up enough rice and water and whatever those astronauts use when they go into outer space to eat so that you can survive and make sure you have guns and ammo in case people come and try to take it from you. Like, I'm sorry, I've read this thing a number of times through. I don't find any of that kind of language. I don't find a fear-driven, protect yourself, go away and hide type of mentality when I, when I read apostolic exhortation. So even this morning, you know, the, the whole point of this word that I'm delivering to you is to say, guys, none of us knows what's happening, the big picture of it. The Lord is aware. The Lord's been aware. And that's why he gave us apostolic wisdom to shape our lives with. Nobody knows what's going to happen in Israel. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the United States. Nobody knows what's going to happen in China and North Korea and all the rest, except the Lord. So you and I, we have to decide, are we going to heed this apostolic wisdom or are we going to try and craft our own way forward? I suggest we go with the former. I really do. Because frankly, I'm not smart enough to come up with a better way. Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> I just, I promise you, I just am not smart enough to come up with a better way to do this than to follow the apostolic wisdom that we've been given in scripture. So with that in mind, would you just consider this morning the exhortation? The end of all things is at hand. Peter is referencing the idea that whenever the Lord determines, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, right, we're, we're going to see the end of evil. We're going to see the, the opposition to the lamb wrapped up. We're going to see the fulfillment of prophesied, promised events in scripture. And so there is a timeline. There's a clock that's ticking. 
and only God knows when the alarm bell is going off. But we must live in light of that future. That's our blessed hope, according to Titus chapter two. The, the returning of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. It's what we're going for. It's what sustains us. Even in times of suffering, in times of hardship, in times of great pain and confusion and frustration, we grab hold of something out there in the future that we cannot see and we just start pulling on it. It's like playing tug of war. Only you're not competing with people, you're clinging to promises and you're just pulling on those promises. That's how we are meant to approach this. So Peter reminds, hey look, there's a future here and it's about to un be unveiled in front of your very eyes. Therefore, here's what you gotta do. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, these weren't exactly like complicated exhortations. Am I right? What's the first one? The first one is not, I mean, it's like, that's all you gotta say, bro? You know, the end of everything is at hand and you're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? And he says, sober up so you can pray. Huh? That, you know, see, this is the first item on the list because it's the engine that drives everything else. There's no kingdom fruit gonna come without prayer. There is no penetration of, of new breakthrough in territories and in, in lands without prayer. There is no deliverance and freedom and liberation without prayer. It doesn't happen. It's God's way. It's his agenda. It's what he tells his disciples when, you know, they, they ask him, teach us to pray. You ever wonder why they ask that? Because there was fruit of Jesus praying. Like, I, there's not a lot of things the disciples asked Jesus to teach them about when you read the Gospels. I don't know if you realize that. They don't sit down and, they, and say to him, hey, Lord, teach us about pastoral care. They didn't really say stuff like that. But they do say a couple things. One of them is teach us to pray. And he says for us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, won't God's will just be done? Apparently not. Apparently he wants our participation in the unfolding of his will. He wants our specific participation in prayer for his will to be done. And sometimes we approach life a little bit like cavalier. Like, ah, God's will will just be done. Will it? I mean, listen, he, if he's telling us to pray for his will to be done, I think there, there might be a reason for that. We can't just take all sorts of things for granted. When, when, when Jesus' disciples, I mean, this is one good example. When Jesus' disciples one time, a guy came to them and said, my son, he's demonized. The demon keeps throwing him into fire, in water. And, and he asked the disciples to cast out the demon. The disciples couldn't do it. I mean, these are disciples. The same Peter and the others who were writing this document at one point in time failed to deliver a young boy from demonic oppression. Later on, Jesus comes out and delivers the boy. And the disciples ask him, this is Mark chapter nine, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus' response, hey, sometimes, some of, some of these come out only through prayer. And some manuscripts have fasting. It's important to pray. It's important to pray for all kinds of things. It's important to pray at all times. First Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. 
Now, obviously, it's not literally possible. You've got to sleep. You can't, you know, whatever. But I think the point is, don't ever stop praying. Prayer is the way to frame your existence at the end of all things. It's, it's, the, it's the way to line your mind and heart up with God's agenda and make sure that you're not going to be driven by reacting to circumstances. It's one of the hardest things not to do, but it's one of the things we must do. We cannot just react to circumstances. It's not enough. Everybody else can do that. We as God's people have to have a sober, the word here is sober mind. It it means sensible. It means reasonable. It means, as the British say, having your wits about you. All right? Like you cannot be, you gotta have that, the sense of, all right, everything's breaking loose all around, but Jesus is king, as we've been saying earlier. If he's king, he's not surprised. So our mentality should not be one of running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Our mentality should be just keeping our gaze locked and being able to say, Lord, in light of all of this, what would you have us do? I mean, we have some instruction. Do we need prophetic direction? Do we need to step out in a certain way in response? But not just reacting out of an emotional gut felt response, but rather responding out of a faith position marked by sobriety, marked by uh, being focused and attentive. Anybody ever notice that it's difficult to pray when you're distracted? Probably nobody. Probably nobody has this problem. Anybody have that problem ever? Yeah. That, that you, you know, you go to pray and you're like, Father, Father, thank you so much. Lord, I just want to come before you today because I've just been, like it's, it's crazy the level of distraction. So like there are certain things just in personal disciplines that I've, I've adopted over my life. Like I, this goes away. Like if I'm going to pray, this goes like in the other room. It goes on the other side of the room. It goes somewhere where I can't even hear the vibrate, because you know that's a problem now. If you put it on a hard surface, you'll still hear the vibrate. You'll still, you'll hear that. So you gotta be smart about this now. You say, well, but Jeff, I have my Bible on my phone. Then stop it. (laughs) They still make actual books, just get one. It's not hard, you know, you can go and get one anywhere. You gotta be smart. You can't afford to put yourself in a position where you're going to distract yourself. You have enough problems from the enemy trying to distract you in prayer. You have enough problems from your, your environment trying to distract you in prayer. At least the, what you could do is to help yourself out a little bit by moving some of the distractions away from you. Now listen, if you're just distracted by a little cell phone, how distracting is it gonna be when the circumstances of life are pressing down on you? Like you're walking through stuff. Your family, your, your friends, your, your roommates, your workmates. Not to mention the, the cosmic scope of the eschaton weighing down on you. Like, how, how are you going to do that? How are you going to pray unless you get sober-minded? Unless you get focused? The, one of the words here is also used back in 1 Peter 1, 13. Where it says, I'll give you the King James Version, 1 Peter 1, 13. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Anybody do any girding up of the loins lately? I don't even know what that meant. 
I don't know what that means. So I had to go and look it up in the original language. I'm like, what does this gird up the loin? What it means in my translation would be tie a belt around the waist of your mind is the idea. It's kind of like in the ancient world, they used to wear these long robes. You've seen The Chosen, right? It's a little joke there. I actually like The Chosen, but I like to throw those in there just so that you remember, you know, it's not, it is, you know, a production. But anyway, they used to wear these long robes. And when you're at home, you don't need a belt. You're just sitting around doing whatever. But when you're going to get up and go out, you know, walk down, you tie a belt so that your legs are more able to be getting somewhere. So the language is like, hey, tie a belt around the waist of your mind. I mean, you can't afford to be lazy in your mind. Hello? You cannot afford to be lazy in the way you think about reality. You cannot afford to be lazy in the way you think about God's promises, in the way you think about your identity and your presence in a broken world and what you're called to do as a result. It's time to get sharp. Come on, put the, put the belt on. Let's get ready to move. We don't have the time to, to be sloppy about this. So if, and, and I, this is, they go hand in hand. If your mind is focused and you are locked in, then prayer becomes very fruitful. You, you find an authority in that place. You find a confidence in that place. You find courage. You find power. You find joy. You find breakthrough in the place of prayer. When you are focused, when your mind is locked in, when you, you are not daydreaming and thinking all about Taylor Swift and all the other things in the Super Bowl and this and that. Like, hey, lock in right now. We have to pray because nobody else is going to do it for us. The world system is not going to knock on the door one day and say, you guys are praying so much, let me take over. It's not going to happen. We're going to have to pray against the tide of the drift of a world system that honors God with its lips, but not its heart. Sober-minded, guys. The end of all things is at hand. Sober up. Like, let's focus. Because prayer is priority number one. You can do a lot of other things after you pray, but if you don't pray, you might as well not do anything. It's the engine of the kingdom. I think that's an E.M. Bounds quote. The prayer is the engine of the kingdom. You can look that up. I might be wrong. It could be another one of those prayer people. What's the great quote? I mean, because without the engine, nothing moves. So I think the, the mentality we're trying to cultivate is that when we are aware of what's at stake, what's hanging in the balance, in the context of our lives, in the time that we're living in, we only get one crack at this. People ask me a lot, you know, they know I study the Bible and this and that. And they're like, so you think this is the last generation? You know, is the Antichrist coming? Is he out there? Are we this and, and, so, and I usually say two things. I say, number one, people have been identifying the Antichrist since the 1300s. Just saying. Maybe someday someone will be right, but up until this point, everyone has been wrong. That should breed a little humility. So it's been 720 years of missing it on who the Antichrist is. So I'm just saying, we need a little perspective. But number two, I don't know most of the answers to those questions, but here's, I don't know if it's the last generation, but I do know it's my last generation. This is all I have. It's all we have to affect the rest of forever is this. 
And we have to get focused in light of that. Okay, so that's why the sober-mindedness and the prayer is the foundation of everything. So whatever we build, it should be coming through that lens. Whatever we're going after, it should be coming through the lens that is filtered and sifted through constant prayer and attentiveness to the Lord, to his word, to his promises, and to his plan. All right, so point number one, point number one sober up and pray, <laughs> okay? Point number two, again, not complicated. Keep on loving each other earnestly. He's like, Brother Jeff, shouldn't, you know, if the end of all things is at hand, shouldn't we run around the streets of Ames preaching the gospel? Hey, maybe. I'm not saying you shouldn't preach the gospel, but there is a priority in the present moment on the household of God and learning how to be family. So this language, let your love for one another be earnest. Let it have a little bit of fire in it, is the idea. Let it have a little bit of intensity. So the, the way you're organized, even the way your life is built, is it built out of a drive to love people who are in God's household. That's a powerful statement about unity. It's a powerful statement about the debt I'm using this word, but I want you to think about it. The debt we owe one another in the sense of love, which is Paul's language in Romans 13. Owe no one nothing except to, to honor them, except to love them, except to, to, to respect and care uh, and give them what they are due in that sense. It's important, our love for one another. It's not just a Sunday school answer. Well, what are the two greatest commandments? Oh, you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Good job. Here's your gold star. Actually, it's supposed to be a way of life that we're embracing. That we're, go we're demonstrating that love, not just feeling it. I love the feeling. Thank God for the feelings. But anyone who's been married longer than nine months knows that love cannot just be a feeling. It is a covenant commitment. Hello, somebody. It is a covenant commitment. It is a form of loyalty and allegiance that first of all, we owe the king and second of all, we give each other. We love one another with loyalty. Sometimes in Chicago, like the gang members know more about love than Christians. Again, I'm not, I'm not advocating their ways, but they understand loyalty better than many of us because they're willing to die for it. And their cause is corrupt. 90% of the time, it's built on the promise of wealth unjustly gained or some kind of thing like that. But you know what they did find? They found solidarity with a group of people to whom they are loyal above everything else. How come we are willing to compromise our loyalty for a better offer, for a better position, for more money, for a better job, a better seat at the table for this and that? Listen, we gotta find that place where we, we know we owe each other some love and loyalty, where we know we're organizing our lives in such a way that when people are taking a hit in our community, we're rallying to their side, boy. We're, we're not waiting for an invitation. We're just showing up the door. Like we're, we're not waiting for the meal train to go around. We're, like we're calling right now. We're going for it. We're taking the initiative. Can I tell you something? Caring for people in the church does not have to start in the pastor's office. 
Hello? It doesn't. You, you see a need, you can meet it. You don't have to wait for someone on the church board to organize a program to take a meal to someone whose husband is in the hospital. Just do it. Or better yet, why don't you organize it? Come on, who are we now? We are, if we are truly family, if we're trying to really live this out with covenant love and loyalty, okay, we have to focus. Through prayer, we have to act. We have to care for one another. We have to serve one another. And listen to this statement. Because of this, you know, the, one of the reasons the love has to be so intense is that Peter provides you with a quote from the Old Testament. It comes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Let me just read this real quick. It's your Old Testament nugget for today. Peter's idea, not mine, but I'm down. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It's an interesting statement. In this chapter, it says love covers a multitude of sins. And I want to talk to you about what that does not mean first. It, it, it does not mean that by loving one another, we can atone for our sins. It's not what Peter's saying. There's only one source of atonement for our sins, and we sang about it earlier. It's Jesus' blood. So Peter's not trying to suggest that. In fact, he refers to the cleansing of the blood earlier in chapter 1, I think, and again and later in chapter 5, if I'm not mistaken. But the blood of Jesus is the only thing that cleanses us from sin. That's not what he's talking about. But he, and he is also not talking about covering up sins, keeping them a secret so that they can be used to manipulate people. I'm sure that most of you are aware of a number of high-profile leaders who recently have fallen from their roles in authority in, in churches and Christian movements precisely because of a poor understanding of this message. Spiritual abuse and, and manipulating people and <clears throat> keeping sins hidden and not confessing them and then holding people hostage about it so that they can get what they want. <clears throat> and that stuff is not what Peter's talking about either. Sin and compromise in leadership should always be addressed, should always be confessed, should all, people should be accountable for that. That's not what Peter's talking about. That, that leaders get a free pass, they can do whatever they want because love covers the multitude. No, that's twisting the Bible, it's manipulation, it's wrong. Nobody should abide with that. We have, we have biblical instruction. If someone's done something wrong in leadership and we should follow it, it's there, 1 Timothy. It's there, Matthew 18. We have those instructions. That's not what this is. What this means is that hatred's goal is to generate division, Proverbs 10. The goal of hatred is to incite us against each other. Strife means a kind of contention where we understand ourselves against other people. We define ourselves against them. We, we position ourselves in such a way as to, as to emphasize that we are not like that. And we take our language from that and our mentality, our mindset. On the other hand, love, what love does is it treats people's offenses against us 
as something that can be swallowed up in the context of covenant love, of our relationship marked by family, where we forgive and we do not allow that offense to continue to drive a wedge. Reconciliation is the heart of love. Was that in the service that someone read 2 Corinthians 5? Or was that before in prayer? Okay, so before the meeting, there were some people praying in this room and 2 Corinthians 5 was read, which is Paul's statement. And he says this, literally, the love of the Messiah controls us. His love motivates us to do what? What we are doing is, is bringing reconciliation. We preach reconciliation, that God through his son is reconciling the world. Hatred drives us apart, love pulls us together. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's something more powerful than the offense that, that was created between us. It's the love of Christ. And I am able, in Christ's love, I am able to take that offense and put it in the ground and just keep loving you. It's like it's just not that important anymore. It's like holding a grudge. Do you know that holding a grudge really only poisons the person holding the grudge? Have you ever thought about that? It's like, you know, it's like, you ever talk to someone who's holding a grudge against something? Why are you holding the grudge? Well, because they said against me and they didn't apologize. Oh, well, how long ago was that? 15 years? Oh, so you're mad at them because they didn't apologize to you for 15 years? Yes. Okay. Do you think they're bothered that they didn't apologize to you? No, that's why I'm mad. Okay. So what you're telling me is the other person doesn't care at all and they're living their best life right now and you for 15 years have been stewing with a grudge because they haven't apologized? Can I give you a little hint? Just stop it already. You know, like, you can't, like, the bitterness in your heart doesn't affect them. Why? Because they don't care. Well, yeah, but they don't, they don't care. You know, you're, you're mad, you're burdened, you're frustrated, you're angry, and you're walking around life, you know, stewing and, and you know, what, just like steam coming off of your head, and they're just fine. So now who's being hurt by this crutch? That person? Clearly not, or they would have apologized. No, you. Your bitterness is only poisoning you, not them. Because, again, they don't care. <laughs> so think this through. You know, one way of understanding this is like, you know, unforgiveness, according to Jesus, unforgiveness is one of the only things in the cosmos that can keep you from God's love. You ever read that, Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then the, the verse just below that says, for if you don't forgive others' sins... Your Father in heaven will not forgive yours. I, there's so many times I wanted to erase that from the Bible. Like, I, can't, I don't want that in there. But no, it's in there for a reason. And the reason is that God knows that your unforgiveness only hurts you. Your hardness of heart, your grudge, your bitterness is only poisoning the waters of your own well. It's not poisoning somebody else. He wants you free and whole and alive. 
That's why he commands us to forgive. That's why he calls us to love. Because in the ocean of God's love, these, these offenses can just drift away. And we don't have to keep rehearsing them. Man, there's, just, there's an incredible freedom when you just finally decide, that's it, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore with the grudge. I can't do this anymore with the bitterness. I can't do this anymore with, with the holding my life hostage because so, someone else won't apologize to me. You can do that a long time or you can let it go. You can go to Jesus. You can be free and alive and whole. And you can be free to love people again. It's hard to love someone when you're governed by bitterness and anger. Anyway, in light of the end, we're called to this. Love reconciles. We refuse to let sin and offenses further fracture into large divisions, divisions and chasms among us. We're not going to do that. We're going to do the things the right way. We are going to confess our sins and we are going to forgive one another. And we're going to, instead of driving people away from us, we're going to wrap our arms around people. One of the most powerful testimonies of reconciliation I've ever seen came in that kind of a context. Like the person has had as of yet not repented. But the person on the other side did something, like an act of, of selfless love that was completely unnecessary, definitely unexpected. And it caused something to break in that person's heart. And later on, the repentance happened, the confession. The so I'm saying, but love is what makes that possible to cover those offenses. Like, it just, you know what? There's something bigger at stake here. And I can't afford to let this wedge get any bigger. This is what we're going to do. All right, so not eat, pray, love. But, but what we're talking about is sober-mindedness, prayer, love. And then I love this next one, guys. Isn't this a beautiful statement? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is such a big deal. It was a big deal in the first century. I think it's a big deal now. There's something different that happens when someone comes into your space. Your home, your dorm room, your apartment, whatever. Like, when you open your life to a person like that, things change. When you, when you allow them access to who you are, you know, when they see the things on your walls or the kind of cutlery you, know, you have. I mean, there's just... It's like you're kind of vulnerable right there. You know, people may not like your dog. I, I, I like your dog. It's fine. People may not like, you know, the kind of artwork that you prefer. People may think that, you know, that, that music that you listen to is like terrible. It's just got no beat to it. I don't like it. You know, there's just different things, different things. You're, you're opening your life up to someone. But what you're doing is you're showing them like trust and welcome. The power of just having someone at your table for a cup of coffee or tea, it's like, it's not a mystery, you know, why Jesus spent so much time at meals. If you ever read the Gospels, it's like 75% of the stories are at a banquet or a meal. And as I read that, I started to think, you know, I like this guy more and more. <laughs> I mean, there's time for fasting for sure, but man, Jesus was accused of being a drunk, a wine bibber. So King James as well. Any bibbing going on out there tonight? 
He's such a wine-bibber. Um, he was accused of that because he was frequently at these dinner parties. And the table for him was like an open door. You ever notice, like when you have a meal with something, someone, like the relationship changes a little bit? That's why those first dates, maybe coffee, you know, because you don't know what you're getting into. But, you know... <laughs> When I, when I think about, when you sit down at a meal with someone, it's like an experience. It's like, an, it's a shared world. It's an environment that's being created right there. And that means things can go really wrong or they can be really right. And it's like, there's something about that. The dynamic, the social interaction, the commitment to the table and, and breaking bread and eating together, that shared social space is really special. And in the first century, the Christians were committed to this. You might know this, but they didn't have church buildings, so most of their gatherings were in people's homes. Some of them might have been small little apartments, others maybe a little bit larger with a little bit more space. Hospitality, man. It's, it's a special form of love where you're making people feel welcome. You're making them feel special and important. My wife and I, she's, uh, she's amazing. She loves to create a special experience for people to come over. Me, I'm just like, we'll use paper plates and I'll grill hot dogs. It'll be fine. She is like, I gotta get flowers. I gotta get the thing for the, I'll have these cute little things that you wrap around the silverware and the napkin. I'm gonna get, where are those? I'm, I'm going out to the garage, aren't I? Like I'm gonna be looking for all those things. But in her heart, what she's trying to do is say like, we're preparing all this because we want you to feel like you're special to us. You're, you're, you're important. We value the fact that you came over here. And of course, that's the way Jesus thinks about it too. I'm not gonna read it, but you might remember John 14. And he tells his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. My father's house, there's a lot of room. I won't, I won't leave you as orphans, I'm coming for you. Like, he, his heart is a, is a heart of hospitality. Like he's right now preparing a place for us. Special. And that hospitality is important. And then so is the last phrase. Without grumbling. Hello. And I have to rehearse this one all the time. We, we host the house church. So that means three Sundays a month. One Sunday we all get all the house churches together. But that means three Saturday nights a month. Your boy is up sweeping and mopping and like doing the dusting of the little things in the living room and cleaning up the kitchen and getting rid of all the junk that accumulates on the table and sticking it somewhere else. God forbid they should know we keep things on our table. Love you, sweetheart, if you're watching. Three Saturday nights a month. Your boy is not watching Rocky or Creed 3 or whatever the movies are. We're getting the space ready for the people coming in the morning. Now listen, I got choices to make during that time. Like, it, is it being done with the heart of worship? Or is it being done with the grumbling, like, like it, when my wife says, you know what would be nice is to get the plates for the, so-and-so out of the garage and put it for the... Is it... Yes, dear. You know, like, where is that? Where is that inside? So, I mean, this is something we've got to deal with. And again, why prayer is the foundation and love is the grid. 
so that even our hospitality should not be with, with you know, grumbling under our breath and complaining about what, what it's going to mean. Oh, well, if we have them over, those kids, you know, it's like, well, hey, listen, hospitality comes with collateral damage, baby. You better be ready. You better be ready for that toilet to get clogged now. You better be ready for someone. I'm just being real. The toilet paper budget for house church. It's a line item. It's a line item. You got to be ready for somebody to spell, spill something on the carpet or th there goes a glass. Oh, we, we're almost down to like two or three bowls from one of our sets. It's just... So you got to frame it like, man, it's, it's worth it. Aren't these people worth more to us than a few bowls? Sound familiar? That's what Jesus said, right? The sparrows have place to eat. They find a nest. Aren't you worth more than that? So if God thinks we're more than that, shouldn't we think each other? I mean, you're more than that. You're more than the toilet paper budget for me. I mean, you're, you're more than the, the bowls that I got to replace. You're more than Saturday night movie night for me. Like I, you're worth more than that to me. So it can be just, just the way we shape our posture and our regular rhythms of life. This is, listen, this is not rocket science. You don't need a prophetic time chart for this, guys. The end of all things is at hand. Ooh, well, where are we? Are we how do you, listen, just, just focus. Just, the things are right here. If, if we will do this, we're going to be powerful, effective disciples. And when God sends us out into the street to preach the gospel, we're going to see fruit. When God puts us in positions in our culture where we have a voice to say something, it will carry weight because our lives reflect the things that we're talking about. We're not just out here making announcements about stuff, but then we're not doing it. If we can organize our lives this way, then when we talk, there's like substance to it. It's not just rhetoric. It's not just religious ideas. It's, no, no, this is, this is who we are. It's the way we built our lives. And we're calling people to join us. Now, this last point I'm going to just briefly mention because we're going to come back this evening and talk a little bit more about this. But I want you to have a look again at verses 10 and 11 real quickly because Peter says, as each one has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. In light of the end, we have to understand that in the kingdom of God, we are all people who can build something. We're all builders in God's kingdom. We all have the capacity to serve one another in such a way as to make them stronger, wiser, more powerful, more effective disciples. We have it. Everyone has it. And sometimes we fall under the, the mistaken like idea that, you know, Ministering to people, speaking, serving. These, that's just for the special ones. That's just for the special people who have a title in front of their name. Pastor so-and-so. Minister this and that. Deacon, whatchamacallit. Intergalactic apostle, this one or that one. 
we, we have constructed in our minds like a kind of mentality in which we disqualify ourselves from fruitful work. And that has to change. It really does. The way this verse starts in the original language is with the word each one. It says it like this, each one, just as he or she has received a gift, let him or her minister that thing. Now, I want you to think about that language. It doesn't say, let the ones who have you know, been Christians for 35 years and served on the board of directors use their gifts. It doesn't say, let everybody who's over 22 who hasn't finished college yet because we don't really know how they're going to turn out, let them use their gifts. It doesn't say that. It just says let each one. It says each one, just as he or she has received a gift, let them use it. The word gift is the same word for you um, Greek aficionados out there that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 where he talks about the spiritual gifts, right? Teaching, uh, prophecy, healing, tongues, interpretations of tongues, discernment, helps, mercy, different things like that. Same one that you're gonna find in Romans 12. And Paul again has this list of, you know, is it, if, is, is it prophecy? Then prophesy according to your faith. Is it teaching? Then teach according to your faith. Is it leadership? Then lead according to your faith. Same, get, same word. We get our English word charisma from this. It's a, this is a concrete manifestation of grace. It's like something tangible that God gives you that now you have the opportunity to pass along to someone else. You don't have a gift for you. You have a gift for us. We, we've been so long thinking about like, I want gifts because of me. But the, that's, not the, it, that's not it at all. The reason I have a gift is for you. The reason you have gifts is for me. Because why? Because I don't have all the gifts. I'm not Jesus, okay? He's the one who's got all everything. And by the Spirit, he distributes these resources, like spiritual resources, what he's giving to us. And according to Peter, we're supposed to manage that stuff. The word steward is like the word manager. What is a manager doing? The best way I can describe a manager is the manager is the person who doesn't own the stuff but is responsible to do the right things with the stuff. You, you own a restaurant, but the manager is the one who makes the restaurant work according to the way that you want it done. But you're the owner, so you don't have to turn up, right? You can go to the Bahamas. Um, the manager, we're managers of grace. Let this sink into your theology a little bit. You know, sometimes we think that because we've received grace, we don't have to do anything. Oh, we just sit back. Oh my gosh, the grace of God, it's so far beyond everything we know. So I'll just sit on the sofa and watch soap operas. You know, like, what are you talking about? Is, it, is this the mindset that God has extravagantly poured out grace on our lives so we cannot do anything with it? I don't understand. Peter doesn't either. He said, you've received something from God, now steward that thing. It's your job to take the grace that he's given and turn it around and use it to serve people. 
And you're, not, you're not doing this to earn your salvation. Nobody even brought that up. What you're doing is, because you're saved, you've been invited into God's family, and God's family has a business plan. The family business is building people. So what you've been given by God, you turn around and use to construct human beings. Now, like I said, I want to talk about this more tonight, and we're going to pray tonight. We're literally going to pray for the, for the distribution of grace among God's people tonight. You're listening to me right now. You're like, I don't think I have any single gift from God that I can use. Come tonight. We're going to pray for you. There, there is literally a passage in Scripture where Timothy is told, I think it's 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, do not neglect the gift that was given to you. The same word, charisma. The gift that was given to you through the laying on of the elders' hands that came with a prophetic word. I'm not saying everyone's going to get a prophecy tonight. But what I am saying is, we're going to pray. Because we need these resources as the people of God. And they're not all going to be found in pastor this guy or musician that guy or administrator that one. They're, they're out here. And the mobilization of the body of Jesus Christ is what is going to lead to the construction of the kind of house that God wants to dwell in. So this is what we're after. Okay, so um, if you can join us tonight, we want to pursue that. Now listen, I want to wrap this up by reminding you, what is all this about? It's about living in light of the end, of all things. But none of this stuff is like weird or unique. Like, it, it, it's like, it's as if Peter was saying, hey, the end of everything is at hand. Can you guys just be Christians? I, I, I think this is the basic exhortation. You don't have to figure out who the Antichrist is. Can I set someone free this morning? You don't have to know that. It's really not a command in the Bible to figure it out. You can actually say, you know what? Stuff's going to go down. We've already been told all about it. Nation will rise against nation. Wars, rumors of wars, all this stuff. I'm not saying we're idiots and we're ignorant of it. No, it's coming. It's going to happen. But can we just be Christians? Is anyone down to just be Christians? And to like to think like a Christian and, and then to build our lives like Christians? I'll, I'll close with this quote. Way back in the 1500s, that's before I was born, in case you're... Way back in the 1500s, this dude named Martin Luther. Anybody heard of Luther? Luther was a strong personality, prophetic type character uh, who had given himself to trying to penalize himself for his own sins and had a revelation that actually his pardon could only come by God's grace and not by his punishing of himself. It was a breakthrough. He started preaching uh, that, the gospel to people who in his era of time, many of them had not heard that. And there was a whole movement, right, launched. We call it today the Reformation. Not just Luther, there were others. But one time Luther was asked, if you knew that today was your last day and that Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? You know what Luther said? He said, I would pay my taxes and plant a tree. I'm like, what? Yeah, he said, that's what I have on the agenda today. It's what I felt like I was supposed to do today. You know, 
In other words, I, I wouldn't change anything. I, I've been living my whole life looking toward the coming of Jesus. I've been trying to set up my life in a way that everything I do honors the Lord and I try to organize my life based on the things that he's trying to tell me I should be doing. Today is tax day. I go pay my taxes because I'm called to pay my taxes by the Bible. Romans 13. And I'd plant the tree because, you know, it was ordered and it's coming in today. We felt like we're putting a tree in, so pay my taxes, plant the tree. Luther's mentality was like, if you're living for Jesus every day, there shouldn't have to be this massive recalibration. Oh, if you knew the Lord was coming, oh my gosh. I'd have to apologize to so-and-so and so-and-so, and then I'd have to go see this guy. I'd have to confess. I'd have to call Pastor Drew for sure. Because, <laughs> Look, that shouldn't be the case. Come on, every day should be lived in light of the end. Every day should be lived with the priorities of the kingdom in view. Every day should be organized in such a way that we could at the end of the day say, man, okay, did it today. I'd say we're perfect, but man, we're, we're learning day by day. Like, what are we doing today? Lord, if these are the things that I'm called to do today, I'm going to do them with all my heart. Colossians 3, whatever your hands find to do, do it unto the Lord. If we can't do it unto the Lord, then we shouldn't be doing it. Hello? If we can't do it unto the Lord, then let's not do it. So anyway, pay your taxes and plant a tree today if you want. But I'm just saying, the encouragement is, man, if we're cultivating a mindset that is sober, if we're giving ourselves to prayer, if we're loving each other, covering offenses with forgiveness and restoration, reconciling people, we're, we're being hospitable without grumbling and complaining, we're taking inventory of what grace God has given us, and then we're trying to turn around and redirect that to people for the benefit, that's a lot to do. That can keep you occupied most days. I'm just saying. And if we can build our lives in that way, then there doesn't have to be this kind of weird, <gasps> what, he's coming back? No, 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 we've been telling you that all along. You don't wanna be like one of those, you know, bridesmaids without the oil. Here he comes, oh, the oil's gone. Sorry, should've thought of that. You know, like, so this is why the sober mind, okay? Would you stand? I want to pray and then, Drew, whatever you, you want to do. Of course, brother, pastor, reverend, <laughs> bishop. Okay. Lord, we love you so much. We are so grateful that you are patient with us, that you are kind, that your heart is not judgmental toward us, but patient, compassionate. Lord, make, I'm praying today, God, make us wise people. Make us powerful, wise people. We don't, we don't want to be the kind of people that are just rattled so easily or, or that, are, that can be manipulated quickly by people making crazy claims about things. Lord, we, we want to be locked in to your purposes. We want our lives to be full and rewarding and meaningful precisely because we're not wasting them on things that have little value. So even today as we receive this word, I, I pray for sobriety. I, I pray for, yes, for us to have our wits about us, that, that we are locked into your words, your purposes, and we're not gonna be shaken by external things. I pray that you would help us to pray. Make us a people who are very comfortable in prayer. We don't feel like foreigners there in the place of prayer but actually we feel like it's home. It's where we belong.
place of prayer. Make us lovers of God and lovers of one another. Make us very quick to forgive, quick to restore, quick to reconcile. People who are free from grudges and bitterness, and people who are alive and purposed, people whose homes and, and dorm rooms and houses and apartments are places of welcome and, and places of life, places where people find hope and joy where they can be loved and cared for with the right heart, with the right attitude. Make us people who are managers of the grace of God, who, who are absolutely getting prepared and ready to use what we have in order to serve others, whether that's speaking or serving, whether that's using our voice or using our, our, our strength, God. We, we expect that and we want that. Lord, make us a people who are worthy of you. So that whether tomorrow is the end or next year or 20 years or 100, we're never going to be caught off guard because we're living in the way that we've been trained. So Father, we thank you for this. Ask your blessing today on your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.